0: Chapter Twenty Seven Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Seven Showing That Old Friends May Not Only Appear with New Faces, But In False Colors that people are prone to bite, and that biters may sometimes be bitten. Mr. Bailey, Jr., for the sporting character, while of general utility at Todgers's, had now regularly set up in life under that name, without troubling himself to obtain from the legislature a direct license in the form of a private bill, which of all kinds and classes of bills is without exception the most unreasonable in its charges. Mr. Bailey, Jr., just tall enough to be seen by an inquiring eye gazing indolently at society from beneath the apron of his master's cab, drove slowly up and down Pall Mall about the hour of noon in waiting for his governor. The horse of distinguished family, who had Capricorn for his nephew and cauliflower for his brother, showed himself worthy of his high relations by champing at the bit until his chest was white with foam and rearing like a horse in heraldry, the plated harness and the patent leather glittered in the sun pedestrians admired mr bailey was complacent but unmoved he seemed to say a barrow good people a mere barrow nothing to what we could do if we chose and on he went squaring his short green arms outside the apron as if he were hooked on to it by his armpits mr bailey had a great opinion of brother to cauliflower and estimated his powers highly but he never told him so. On the contrary, it was his practice in driving that animal to assail him with disrespectful, if not injurious, expressions as, "'Ah, would you? Did you think it then? Where are you going to now?' "'No, you won't, my lad,' and similar fragmentary remarks. These, being usually accompanied by a jerk of the rein or a crack of the whip, led to many trials of strength between them, and to many contentions for the upper hand— terminating now and then in china shops and other unusual goals, as Mr. Bailey had already hinted to his friend Paul Sweetlepipe. On the present occasion, Mr. Bailey, being in spirits, was more than commonly hired upon his charge, in consequence of which that fiery animal confined himself almost entirely to his hind legs in displaying his paces, and constantly got himself into positions with reference to the cabriolet that very much amazed the passengers in the street. But Mr. Bailey, not at all disturbed, had still a shower of pleasantries to bestow on any one who crossed his path, as, calling to a full-grown coal-heaver in a wagon, who for a moment blocked the way, "'Now, young'un, who trusted you with the cart?' Inquiring of elderly ladies who wanted to cross, and ran back again, why they didn't go to the workhouse and get an order to be buried." Tempting boys with friendly words to get up behind, and immediately afterwards cutting them down, and the like flashes of a cheerful humour, which he would occasionally relieve by going round St. James's Square at a hand-gallop, and coming slowly into Pall Mall by another entry, as if, in the interval, his pace had been a perfect crawl. It was not until these amusements had been very often repeated, and the apple-stall at the corner had sustained so many miraculous escapes as to appear impregnable, that Mr. Bailey was summoned to the door of a certain house in Mall, and, turning short, obeyed the call and jumped out. It was not until he had held the bridle for some minutes longer, every jerk of Cauliflower's brother's head, and every twitch of Cauliflower's brother's nostril, taking him off his legs in the meanwhile, that two persons entered the vehicle, one of whom took the reins and drove rapidly off. Nor was it until Mr. Bailey had run after it some hundreds of yards in vain that he managed to lift his short leg into the iron step and finally to get his boots upon the little footboard behind. then indeed he became a sight to see, and standing now on one foot and now upon the other, now trying to look round the cab on this side, now on that and now endeavouring to peep over the top of it as it went dashing in among the carts and coaches, was from head to heel Newmarket. The appearance of Mr. Bailey's governor as he drove along fully justified that enthusiastic youth's description of him to the wandering Paul. He had a world of jet-black shining hair upon his head, upon his cheeks, upon his chin, upon his upper lip. His clothes, symmetrically made, were of the newest fashion and the costliest kind. Flowers of gold and blue and green and blushing red were on his waistcoat. Precious chains and jewels sparkled on his breast. His fingers, clogged with brilliant rings, were as unwieldy as summer flies, but newly rescued from a honeypot. The daylight mantled in his gleaming hat and boots as in a polished glass. And yet, though changed his name and changed his outward surface— It was Tig, though turned and twisted upside down and inside out, as great men have been sometimes known to be, though no longer Montague Tig, but Tig Montague, still it was Tig, the same satanic, gallant, military Tig. The brass was burnished, lacquered, newly stamped. Yet it was the true Tig metal, notwithstanding. Beside him sat a smiling gentleman of less pretensions and of business looks, whom he addressed as David. Surely not the David of the—how shall it be phrased—the triumvirate of golden balls? Not David, tapster at the Lombard's arms? Yes, the very man. The secretary's salary, David, said Mr. Montague, the office being now established, is eight hundred pounds per annum, with his house-rent, coals, and candles free. "'His five-and-twenty shares he holds, of course. Is that enough?' David smiled and nodded and coughed behind a little locked portfolio which he carried, with an air that proclaimed him to be the secretary in question. "'If that's enough,' said Montague, "'I will propose it at the board to-day, in my capacity as chairman.' The secretary smiled again, laughed indeed this time, and said, rubbing his nose slyly with one end of the portfolio— "'It was a capital thought, wasn't it?' "'What was a capital thought, David?' Mr. Montague inquired. "'The Anglo-Bengali,' tittered the secretary. "'The Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company "'is rather a capital concern, I hope, David,' said Montague. "'Capital indeed!' cried the secretary, with another laugh. "'In one sense.' "'In the only important one,' observed the chairman, "'which is number one, David.' "'What?' asked the secretary, bursting into another laugh. "'What will be the paid-up capital, according to the next prospectus?' "'A figure of two, and as many aughts after it as the printer can get into the same line,' replied his friend. (laughs) "'Ha-ha!' At this they both laughed. The secretary, so vehemently, that in kicking up his feet he kicked the apron open and nearly startled Cauliflower's brother into an oyster shop not to mention Mr. Bailey's receiving such a sudden swing that he held on for a moment quite a young fame, by one strap and no legs. "'What a chap you are!' exclaimed David, admiringly, when this little alarm had subsided. "'Say, genius, David, genius!' "'Well, upon my soul, you are a genius, then,' said David. "'I always knew you had the gift of the gab, of course, but I never believed you were half the man you are. How could I?' I rise with circumstances david that's a point of genius in itself said tigg if you were to lose a hundred pound wager to me at this minute david and were to pay it which is most confoundedly improbable i should rise in a mental point of view directly it is due to mr tigg to say that he had really risen with his opportunities and peculating on a grander scale he had become a grander man altogether ha <laughs> ha cried the secretary laying his hand with growing familiarity upon the chairman's arm. When I look at you and think of your property in Bengal being— (laughs) Ha, ha, ha! The half-expressed idea seemed no less ludicrous to Mr. Tigg than to his friend, for he laughed, too, heartily. Being—resumed David—being amenable— your property in Bengal being amenable to all claims upon the company. When I look at you and think of that— you might tickle me into fits by waving the feather of a pen at me. Upon my soul you might. "'It's a devilish fine property,' said Tigg Montague, "'to be amenable to any claims. "'The preserve of tigers alone is worth a mint of money, David.' David could only reply, in the intervals of his laughter, "'Oh, what a chap you are!' and so continued to laugh and hold his sides and wipe his eyes for some time without offering any other observation." "'A capital idea?' said Tig, returning after a time to his companion's first remark. "'No doubt it was a capital idea. It was my idea.' "'No, no, it was my idea,' said David. "'Hang it. Let a man have some credit. Didn't I say to you that I'd saved a few pounds?' "'You said.' "'Didn't I say to you,' interposed Tig, "'that I had come into a few pounds?' "'Certainly you did,' returned David warmly. "'But that's not the idea.' Who said that if we put the money together we could furnish an office and make a show? And who said, retorted Mr. Tigg, that provided we did it on a sufficiently large scale, we could furnish an office and make a show without any money at all? Be rational and just and calm, and tell me whose idea was that? Why, there, David was obliged to confess, you had the advantage of me, I admit. But I don't put myself on a level with you. I only want a little credit in the business.' "'All the credit you deserve to have,' said Tig. "'The plain work of the company, David—figures, books, circulars, "'advertisements, pens, ink, and paper, sealing-wax, and wafers— "'is admirably done by you. "'You are a first-rate groveler. "'I don't dispute it. "'But the ornamental department, David—the inventive and poetical department— "'is entirely yours,' said his friend, no question of it. "'But with such a swell turnout as this— and all the handsome things you've got about you, and the life you lead. I mean to say it's a precious, comfortable department, too. "'Does it gain the purpose? Is it Anglo-Bengali?' asked Tig. "'Yes,' said David. "'Could you undertake it yourself?' demanded Tig. "'No,' said David. "'Ha, ha!' laughed Tig. "'Then be contented with your station and your profits, David, my fine fellow, and bless the day that made us acquainted across the counter of our common uncle.' for it was a golden day to you. It will have been already gathered from the conversation of these worthies that they were embarked in an enterprise of some magnitude in which they addressed the public in general from the strong position of having everything to gain and nothing at all to lose, and which, based upon this great principle, was thriving pretty comfortably. The Anglo-Bengali disinterested loan and life-assurance company started into existence one morning not an infant institution but a grown-up company running alone at a great pace and doing business right and left with a branch in a first floor over a tailor's at the west end of the town and main offices in a new street in the city comprising the upper part of a spacious house resplendent in stucco and plate-glass with wire blinds in all the windows and Anglo-Bengali worked into the pattern of every one of them. On the door-post was painted again in large letters Offices of the Anglo-Bengali Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company. And on the door was a large brass plate with the same inscription, always kept very bright, as courting inquiry, staring the city out of countenance after office hours on working days and all day long on Sundays, and looking bolder than the bank. Within, the offices were newly plastered, newly painted, newly papered, newly countered, newly floor-clothed, newly tabled, newly chaired, newly fitted up in every way, with goods that were substantial and expensive, and designed, like the company, to last. Business. Look at the green ledgers with red backs like strong cricket balls beaten flat, The court guides' directories, day-books, almanacs, letter-boxes, weighing machines for letters, rows of fire-buckets for dashing out a conflagration in its first spark and saving the immense wealth in notes and bonds belonging to the company. Look at the iron safes, the clock, the office seal in its capacious self, security for anything. Solidity. Look at the massive blocks of marble in the chimney-pieces and the gorgeous parapet on the top of the house. Publicity. Why, Anglo-Bengali disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company is painted on the very coal scuttles. It is repeated at every turn, until the eyes are dazzled with it and the head is giddy. It is engraved upon the top of all the letter paper, and it makes a scroll work round the seal, and it shines out of the porter's buttons. And it is repeated twenty times in every circular and public notice, wherein one David Crimple, Esquire, secretary and resident director— takes the liberty of inviting your attention to the accompanying statement of the advantages offered by the Anglo-Bengali disinterested loan and life assurance company, and fully proves to you that any connection on your part with that establishment must result in a perpetual Christmas-box and constantly increasing bonus to yourself, and that nobody can run any risk by the transaction except the office, which, in its great liberality, is pretty sure to lose. And this— David Crimple Esquire, submits to you, and the odds are heavy you believe him, is the best guarantee that can reasonably be suggested by the Board of Management for its permanence and stability. This gentleman's name, by the way, had been originally Crimp, but as the word was susceptible of an awkward construction and might be misrepresented, he had altered it to Crimple.' Lest, with all these proofs and confirmations, any man should be suspicious of the Anglo-Bengali disinterested loan and life-assurance company, should doubt in Tiger, Cab, or Person, Tig Montague, Esquire, of Mall and Bengal, or any other name in the imaginative list of directors, there was a porter on the premises, a wonderful creature, in a vast red waistcoat and a short-tailed pepper-and-salt coat, who carried more conviction to the minds of skeptics than the whole establishment without him. No confidences existed between him and the directorship. Nobody knew where he had served last. No character or explanation had been given or required. No questions had been asked on either side. This mysterious being, relying solely on his figure, had applied for the situation, and had been instantly engaged on his own terms. They were high, but he knew, doubtless, that no man could carry such an extent of waistcoat as himself, and felt the full value of his capacity to such an institution. When he sat upon a seat erected for him in a corner of the office, with his glazed hat hanging on a peg over his head, it was impossible to doubt the respectability of the concern. It went on doubling itself with every square inch of his red waistcoat, until, like the problem of the nails in the horse's shoes, the total became enormous. People had been known to apply to effect an insurance on their lives for a thousand pounds, and looking at him, to beg, before the form of proposal was filled up, that it might be made two. And yet he was not a giant. His coat was rather small than otherwise. The whole charm was in his waistcoat. Respectability, competence, property in Bengal or anywhere else— responsibility to any amount on the part of the company that employed him were all expressed in that one garment. Rival offices had endeavoured to lure him away. Lombard Street itself had beckoned to him. Rich companies had whispered, "'Be a beetle!' But he still continued faithful to the Anglo-Bengali. Whether he was a deep rogue or a stately simpleton, it was impossible to make out. But he appeared to believe in the Anglo-Bengali— He was grave with imaginary cares of office, and having nothing whatever to do and something less to take care of would look as if the pressure of his numerous duties and a sense of the treasure in the company's strong-room made him a solemn and a thoughtful man. As the cabriolet drove up to the door, this officer appeared, bareheaded on the pavement, crying aloud, "'Room for the chairman! Room for the chairman, if you please!' Much to the admiration of the bystanders, who, it is needless to say, had their attention directed to the Anglo-Bengali Company thenceforth by that means. Mr. Tigg leaped gracefully out, followed by the managing director, who was by this time very distant and respectful, and ascended the stairs, still preceded by the porter, who cried as he went, By your leave there, by your leave, the chairman of the board, gentlemen, in like manner, but in a still more stentorian voice he ushered the chairman through the public office where some humble clients were transacting business into an awful chamber labelled board room the door of which sanctuary immediately closed and screened the great capitalist from vulgar eyes the board room had a turkey carpet in it a sideboard a portrait of tigg montague esq as chairman a very imposing chair of office garnished with an ivory hammer and a little hand bell and a long table set out at intervals with sheets of blotting paper, foolscap, clean pens, and inkstands. The chairman, having taken his seat with great solemnity, the secretary supported him on his right hand, and the porter stood bolt upright behind them, forming a warm background of waistcoat. This was the board; everything else being a light-hearted little fiction. "Bullamy," said Mister Tigg. "Sir," replied the porter. Let the medical officer know, with my compliments, that I wish to see him. Bullamy cleared his throat and bustled out into the office, crying, "'The chairman of the board wishes to see the medical officer. By your leave there, by your leave!' He soon returned with the gentleman in question, and at both openings of the boardroom door, at his coming in and at his going out, simple clients were seen to stretch their necks and stand upon their toes, thirsting to catch the slightest glimpse of that mysterious chamber. "'Jobling, my dear friend,' said Mr. Tigg. "'How are you?' "'Bullamy, wait outside. "'Crimple, don't leave us. "'Jobling, my good fellow, I am glad to see you.' "'And how are you, Mr. Montague, eh?' said the medical officer, throwing himself luxuriously into an easy-chair. They were all easy-chairs in the board-room.' and taking a handsome gold snuff-box from the pocket of his black satin waistcoat. How are you? A little worn with business, eh? If so, rest. A little feverish from wine? Humph. If so, water. Nothing at all the matter, and quite comfortable? Then take some lunch. A very wholesome thing at this time of day to strengthen the gastric juices with lunch, Mr. Montague. The medical officer— He was the same medical officer who had followed poor old Anthony Chuzzlewit to the grave, and who had attended Mrs. Gamp's patient at the bull, smiled in saying these words, and casually added, as he brushed some grains of snuff from his shirt-frill, "'I always take it myself about this time of day, do you know?' "'Bullamy,' said the chairman, ringing the little bell. "'Sir.' "'Lunch.' "'Not on my account, I hope,' said the doctor. "'You are very good.' "'Thank you. I'm quite ashamed. (laughs) Ha-ha!' "'If I had been a sharp practitioner, Mr. Montague, "'I shouldn't have mentioned it without a fee, "'for you may depend upon it, my dear sir, "'that if you don't make a point of taking lunch, "'you'll very soon come under my hands. "'Allow me to illustrate this. "'In Mr. Crimple's leg, "'the resident director gave an involuntary start, "'for the doctor, in the heat of his demonstration, "'caught it up and laid it across his own, "'as if he were going to take it off then and there.' In mr Crimple's leg, you'll observe, pursued the doctor, turning back his cuffs and spanning the limb with both hands, where mr Crimple's knee fits into the socket, here, there is-that is to say, between the bone and the socket-a certain quantity of animal oil. What do you pick my leg out for? said mr Crimple, looking with something of an anxious expression at his limb. It's the same with other legs, ain't it? Never you mind, my good sir, returned the doctor, shaking his head. "'whether it is the same with other legs or not the same.' "'But I do mind,' said David. "'I take a particular case, Mr. Montague,' returned the doctor, "'as illustrating my remark,' you observe. "'In this portion of Mr. Crimple's legs, sir, "'there is a certain amount of animal oil. "'In every one of Mr. Crimple's joints, sir, "'there is more or less of the same deposit. "'Very good. "'If Mr. Crimple neglects his meals "'or fails to take his proper quantity of rest,' "'That oil wanes and becomes exhausted. "'What is the consequence? "'Mr. Crimple's bones sink down into their sockets, sir, "'and Mr. Crimple becomes a weazen, puny, stunted, miserable man.' "'The doctor let Mr. Crimple's leg fall suddenly, "'as if he were already in that agreeable condition, "'turned down his wristbands again, "'and looked triumphantly at the chairman. "'We know a few secrets of nature in our profession, sir,' "'said the doctor. "'Of course we do.' We study for that. We pass the hall and the college for that. And we take our station in society by that. It's extraordinary how little is known on these subjects generally. Where do you suppose, now—the doctor closed one eye as he leaned back smilingly in his chair, and formed a triangle with his hands, of which his two thumbs composed the base—where do you suppose Mr. Crimple's stomach is? Mr. Crimple, more agitated than before, clapped his hand immediately below his waistcoat. "'Not at all,' cried the doctor, "'not at all. Quite a popular mistake, my good sir. You're altogether deceived.' "'I feel it there when it's out of order. That's all I know,' said Crimple. "'You think you do,' replied the doctor. "'But science knows better. There was a patient of mine once, touching one of the many morning rings upon his fingers and slightly bowing his head. "'a gentleman who did me the honour "'to make a very handsome mention of me in his will. "'In testimony, as he was pleased to say, "'of the unremitting zeal, talent, and attention "'of my friend and medical attendant, "'John Jobling, Esquire, M.R.C.S., "'who was so overcome by the idea "'of having all his life laboured under an erroneous view "'of the locality of this important organ, "'that when I assured him on my professional reputation "'he was mistaken,' He burst into tears, put out his hand, and said, Jobling, God bless you. Immediately afterwards, he became speechless, and was ultimately buried at Brixton. By your leave, there, cried Bullamy without. By your leave, refreshment for the board room. Ha! said the doctor jocularly, as he rubbed his hands and drew his chair nearer to the table. The true life assurance, Mr. Montague. The best policy in the world, my dear sir. We should be provident and eat and drink whenever we can, eh, Mr. Crimple? The resident director acquiesced rather sulkily, as if the gratification of replenishing his stomach had been impaired by the unsettlement of his preconceived opinions in reference to its situation. But the appearance of the porter and underporter with a tray covered with a snow-white cloth, which, being thrown back, displayed a pair of cold roast fowls, Flanked by some potted meats and a cool salad, quickly restored his good humor. It was enhanced still further by the arrival of a bottle of excellent madeira and another of champagne, and he soon attacked the repast with an appetite scarcely inferior to that of the medical officer. End of chapter twenty seven, part one.